Welcome back to the Monsters and Mixers podcast. We are your hosts. I am Emma. And I am Amy. And it's been a little bit since we've been with you guys. We've had a busy start to the summer. Yeah. Good, but busy. Yeah. Do you want to tell everybody about your trip to NOLA? Um, I am actually going to do my next episode on our trip to NOLA, so I'll fill everybody in on what happened then. You don't have to say what happened. You can just say, did you have a good time? I did. I had a great time. Anniversary trip. Anniversary trip. Picking out a place to live because we're, part of us are relocating there because someone won't come with me, but whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Um, Something that I kind of wanted to talk about before we get into the actual episode was some developments in the Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie case. Uh, An article was posted yesterday on Rolling Stone. I guess they're, I don't know if they... You have to wait a certain amount of time before you can release specifics like this, but they are starting to release and make public what is found or what was found in the notebook that they found next to Brian's body. Um, And it was essentially, the FBI announced that it was essentially a confession. Yeah. Um, We already kind of knew what was going to be done here, but the laundry family attorney also said it, um, that it was a confession. It was a multi-page suicide note, which was somehow still legible after being underwater for several weeks, which is... I think they originally said that it was in some kind of a water-sealed container, like the notebook. Um, His backpack was pretty um, element-ready, I guess would be the Probably. I mean, yeah, he was an outdoorsman. But I'm just going to read this little clip here. Um, this article says, In what reads like a romanticized fantasy of a mercy killing, Laundry explains that he and Petito had been rushing back to their van on a Wyoming campground as darkness set in when Petito fell while crossing a stream. I hear a splash and a scream, Laundry wrote. I found her breathing heavily, gasping my name. He carried her as far as he could, then built a fire and spooned her to try to warm her up, he claimed. She was so thin, had already been freezing too long, he wrote. He said she had a head injury and was coming in and out of consciousness, begging for an end to her pain. So, there's a couple things I'm confused about. Do they make it back all the way to their camp where their van was? Does Is that, like, specified? They, no, that's not specified. Because if not, why not get into the van, turn the heat on, and warm her up that way? It says that they were rushing back to the van. So maybe they never made it. I'm going to assume, I mean, if we want to believe that he's telling the truth, which I honestly do not believe what is written here a lot of what is written because it just makes no sense whatsoever genuinely makes no sense (coughs) excuse me the thing that um stood out to me was saying that she had been freezing for too long um which really makes no sense when he says that he hears a splash and a scream and immediately finds her after falling so it's not like she ran off by herself in the middle of the night, fell, and he didn't find her until right. 12 hours later in the morning when she had already been, like, in the water for that long. It just doesn't really add up to me at all. And you took the time to, like, build a fire and, like, spoon her as opposed to just, like, rushing her back to the van and driving to get help. Yeah. Um, and he claims that he ended his life because he couldn't go on without her and not because he was afraid of punishment, which I also don't believe. Because if you weren't afraid of punishment, why the hell did you run for two weeks? Right. And Instead it... of telling her family what happened. He could have saved himself so much trouble if this is genuinely what happened and her autopsy kind of reflected that. Yeah. If then that he she hit her head and then was strangled. I mean, he would have faced some repercussions, yes, because you can't just like take someone out like a 
sick dog because right. they're injured. Um, but it would have saved so much trouble for so many people, including his family. But he did. Didn't you say that part of the letter says, please leave my family alone or something like that at the end? I think that was. Um, he apologized to her family and asked whoever he intended the letter for to not make life harder for his family. Um, who he said lost a son and in Petito a daughter. Yeah. The whole thing's just tragic and awful. And I mean, it does shed some light on the last bit of her life, but that's only if you believe him. Right. And, and he's the only one who would know or be able to tell us that and he's gone. So yeah. I don't know. I honestly hope at this point, for the sake of her family, that they stop slowly releasing shit like yeah. this. Because I'm sure they are just so tired of it being constantly brought up every month. Pretty sure they won their lawsuit. I'm sure they're just ready to be Completely. somewhat able to put it behind them. Yeah. It would... There, and nothing good comes out of releasing that information. It proves nothing. No. It's just somebody's word against... And it's not really against, like... It does, she did die in that manner. So, I mean, I don't, it adds more questions to me than anything. Yeah, same. Other questions than the fact that, that are never going to be answered. Other than the fact that he said, yeah, I did it, which everybody pretty much assumed anyway when they right. found him dead. Exactly. So, no one else was there. No. And you can't strangle yourself. Exactly. Also, just like, even if things happen the way that he claimed, something has to be off with you already to where you can be like I'm gonna put her out of her misery yeah like a girl that you like claim to have loved and been with for a while and traveling like it's something has and then to not only do that but leave her out there yeah like dude was fucked up and I feel horrible for everyone involved same so now that said <laughs> out of the way <laughs> um Today I'm going to be discussing yet another missing persons case. I've kind of been on like a missing persons kick lately. There are so many out there that do not get the coverage that they should be getting. And this is one that got a lot of coverage, but kind of in the fashion of like Jennifer Kess and stuff like that. I feel like I would, I wanted to keep up with the trend of infamous missing persons cases. And this is quite possibly one of probably the most infamous of all time. And one that we've mentioned a few times on here. And that is the case of the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. What was supposed to be a dream vacation for Natalie Holloway and her fellow senior classmates from Mountain Brook High School in Alabama quickly devolved into an absolute nightmare. Natalie Ann Holloway, born the October 21st, 1986, was an 18-year-old beautiful, bright young girl. She was the first of two children born to her parents, Dave and Elizabeth Holloway, in Memphis, Tennessee. And her parents divorced in 1993, and it's said that she and her younger brother, Matthew were predominantly raised by her mother, Beth. Beth remarried in 2000 to George Jug Twitty, who was a prominent and successful businessman in Alabama, and their family relocated to Mountain Brook, Alabama afterwards. As I stated, Natalie was a very bright and smart 18-year-old, and she graduated with honors in May 2005 from Mountain Brook High School, which was located in a very wealthy suburb of Birmingham. I mean, her stepdad was a very successful man. Jug? Yeah, Jug Twitty. She was a member of the National Honor Society and her school's dance team, and she was on track to attend the University of Alabama with a full ride where she was planning to study pre-med. So, getting a full ride to University of Alabama, yeah. this girl is killing it. On the 26th of May, 2005, Natalie, with her 124 classmates and seven adult chaperones, traveled to Aruba to celebrate their high school graduation. 
They were excited as they had a five-day trip full of sunny beaches and some time away from home ahead of them. And absolutely any 18-year-old would be stoked for this. It was Natalie's dream vacation. Yeah, it sounds... Aruba sounds amazing. The group was set to stay at the Holiday Inn Resort, which was a resort located at the northern end of the Aruba Island. And according to teacher and chaperone Bob Plummer, the adults met with the students every day to check in and make sure that everything was going safely and smoothly. Jody Behrman, the organizer of the trip, has stated that the chaperones were not supposed to keep up with their every move. Um, this may sound a bit irresponsible at first, but it makes sense when you think about it. They wanted to give them their space and allow them to have a good trip without the adults breathing down their necks, which makes sense. Plus, the adults probably wanted to have some fun right. of their own, too. I mean, it's, it's not like, like they just threw them to do whatever and never checked on them. Police Commissioner Gerald Dompig, who headed the investigation, I'm going to say right now, a lot of these last names are, are going to be hard and crazy for me to pronounce. I've tried. Who headed the investigation from mid-2005 to 2006, stated that the Mountain Brook students engaged in, quote, wild partying, a lot of drinking, lots of room switching every night. We know the Holiday Inn told them they weren't, uh, weren't welcome next year, which... Once again, I'm not surprised by you have 124 recently graduated 18-year-olds in a tropical location for their first trip and taste of freedom. So, of course, partying is going to occur and honestly should have been and probably was expected by everyone who right. went on that trip. Well, I mean, they didn't pick to go, like, vacation in Idaho. Well, like, they picked they somewhere where the legal drinking age is right. 18 so they could all let loose. They knew what was going to happen, and so I don't, it's kind of weird for him to point that out like it was a surprise. There are also claims made by the same commissioner that Natalie was drinking heavily, um, with him stating, we know she drank all day, every day. We have statements that she started every morning with cocktails. So much drinking that Natalie didn't show up for breakfast two mornings. Um, I'm not a breakfast eater, so. Yeah, and I'm not sure what point he's trying to prove by emphasizing this, but I've seen it quoted multiple times, so I just added it to see if there's any relevance. To the listeners, this guy, you're going to learn very quickly, is very victim-blamey. I was going to say, he sounds like a victim-blamer for sure. Yeah. Uh, really was just, honestly, probably a douche. Sorry, Dom Pig, if you're listening. Three days into her trip, Natalie met Joran Vandersloot, a 17-year-old Dutch honor student who was living in Aruba and attending the International School of Aruba. It's claimed that the two quickly liked each other's company as they were seen together throughout the day and night of May 20, 29th. Sloot accompanied Natalie at a famous Aruban bar called Carlos and Charlie's in the downtown area where they drank and danced together. And I don't know if you remember the, um, what was the case of the girl who went missing? Jennifer Cass? No, because she went missing in Florida. The lady from the cruise ship? Yeah. What was, what was her name? Um, I'm so sorry, I can't remember her name. I'll look it up. Go but ahead. this is a notorious spot, um, and it has been mentioned multiple times for, in, uh, missing persons cases, especially with like cruises. I'm not sure what they have going on there, but seems a little iffy to me. Amy Lynn Bradley? Yes, Amy Lynn Bradley. That was a spot that she was also they also thought that they had seen her I think post-disappearance mm -hmm. and the people who were working on the cruise invited her to go to Carlos and Charlie's. So at 1am, Natalie left the bar with him and his two friends Deepak Kalpo and Satish Kalpo. The next day, all the students lined up for their count check before they were set to board their flights and depart from Aruba. 130 people were at the hotel with one missing, Natalie. 
Her friends and classmates headed up to her room, assuming she had just failed to wake up in time, only to find that all of her belongings remained untouched. Her packed luggage and her passport were found in her room, and Aruban authorities initiated searches throughout the island to no avail, and her parents were immediately alerted of her disappearance. That night, her mother, her stepfather, and family friends arrived in Aruba on a rented jet. They began to question those around of her actions and locations prior to disappearing, which led them back to Carlos and Charlie's, and within four hours of landing, they had Joran Vandersloot's name, which is... I think it's Joran. Joran, whatever. Once again, these weird Dutch names. Joran Vandersloot's name, which is very impressive that within four hours, they had a name of the last person seen with her. It's also very impressive and proactive of the parents to immediately mm-hmm. hightail it there. Not that I wouldn't do the exact same thing. They also had the resources, too. I mean, they yeah, were, pretty had healthy. a rented jet, so yeah. they got... They were able to do so, but yes, I agree. Um, they presented his name and address to the police, stating that it was given to them by the night manager at the Holiday Inn, who supposedly recognized him on a videotape. Her parents, accompanied by their friends and two Aruban policemen, went to the Vandersloot home to look for Natalie. Vandersloot initially denied knowing Natalie's name, before then telling a story that was corroborated by Deepak Kalpo, who was also present in the home at the time of the questioning. He told them that they drove Natalie to the California lighthouse area of Arashi Beach because she wanted to see the sharks, and then later dropped her off at the Holiday Inn around 2 a.m. According to Vandersloot, Natalie allegedly fell down as she exited the car but refused help. He stated that as he and the Calpos were driving away, they saw Natalie being approached by a dark man in a black shirt similar to those worn by the security guards. Does security footage back any of this up? We'll get there. Okay. He actually led them back to the hotel with the promise of pointing out a security guard who allegedly helped Natalie inside, but upon arriving, he was unable to find said person. On June 1st, 2005, Natalie had yet to officially be declared a missing person. That being said, a group of approximately 100 tourists and various locals began their own search and started combing the area. In the following weeks, the search expanded to include a volunteer team from Texas, the Aruban police, Dutch Marines, and three F-16 fighter planes from the Netherlands. Still, none of these groups were able to locate Natalie at all. And honestly, how quickly this search became, like, massive is impressive for the time period specifically. They went, like, full throttle immediately. They wasted zero time. Um, I mean, I'm sure the Aruban government doesn't really want a missing American yeah, it's bad PR for yeah. tourists. Tourists, they, they rely heavily on tourism. During the first few days of the search, the Aruban government gave thousands of civil servants the day off to participate in the rescue efforts. Fifty Dutch Marines conducted an extensive search of the shoreline. Aruban banks raised $20,000 and provided sur- support to aid search teams, and Natalie's mother was provided housing. The search and rescue efforts were deep and expansive and happened almost immediately. Can I ask you a question real quick? Did the other kids go back? Yes. So, had it been any of them involved, it would be nearly impossible to have done an actual investigation of those people because they're no longer in the country. Well, yeah. So but, I mean, they can't hold them there. I Well, I think in this situation they probably could have, and that's something that I actually just now thought about. Yeah. That if it was one of her classmates, not to say that it was, but that's really strange. Yeah. And I'm not saying that any of them were responsible, but I would think that they would have at least held them for a day, maybe changed their flight and done some more, like, questioning. Yeah. I think they honestly got, like, the tunnel vision that a lot of 
Investigators do get, which in this case, I can see why and realize that she was not last seen with any of them and had really no reason to suspect, suspect any of them were to do anything. Um, but I agree, yeah, it is probably something that they should have considered a little more heavily. Yeah. Um, to answer your earlier question, reports indicated that Natalie did not appear on any nighttime surveillance footage of the hotel lobby. However... According to varying statements from her family, the video cameras were allegedly not working at all the night that she vanished. Um, her mother, however, has made other claims that they were working and even said so in her book. So I guess it just depends, depends on, the on yeah the source and who you want to believe. But Natalie was not seen on any footage, whether it was working or not. Why do so many video surveillance footages never freaking work when they need to work? It's, I know. It's bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. Well, especially, like, at this time, like, 2005, I'd imagine, like, surveillance probably wasn't that great to begin with. Even in, like, the Jennifer Kess story, like, they had surveillance footage of someone dropping off her car, but they somehow got lucky enough that it was one of those cameras that took, like, pictures every, like, five seconds and their face was blocked out every time they walked. It's just, like, it is weird that it seems like this happens. This is a, a trend in these things where either the footage isn't working or the footage is fucked up in some way. Yeah. And doesn't help them at all. Um, police Commissioner John Vanderstraat, Stratton, Stratton, Stratton. Um, the initial head of the investigation until his 2005 retirement said that Holloway did not have to go through the lobby to return to her room. So, if we want to believe that she wasn't seen on the footage, she also did not have to go to the lobby to get back. But if she was like drunk the way that they're implying like her falling out of the car and security guards having to like help her inside if that is a true story which i don't believe it is you would think that they would be seen on the lobby the lobby footage the search for physical evidence was extensive as well and subject to occasional false leads for example a potential blood sample was taken from deepak calvo's car and it was tested but determined not to be blood in the end Four days later, on June 5th, the first suspects in the case were detained on suspicion of kidnapping and murder. And these were former security guards of a nearby hotel closed for renovation, Nick John and Abraham Jones. Authorities have never officially disclosed their reasoning for suspecting these two, but according to news accounts, statements made by Vandersloot and the Calpool brothers may have been a factor in their arrests. Other reports also indicated that the two were known for cruising hotels to pick up women, and at least one of them had a prior run-in with law enforcement. That being said, Nick and Abraham were released on June 13th without being charged with anything. On June 9th, 2005, Gerald Dompig arrested the three men who were last spotted with Natalie, Vandersloot and the Calpo brothers. A Reuben law allows for investigators to make an arrest based on serious suspicion if you're wondering how all of these arrests are being made without solid proof. In order to hold a suspect in custody, however, an increasing evidential burden must be met at periodic reviews. So you have to be proving that you're holding them because you know that you're getting evidence that makes them guilty. You can't just hold someone forever with nothing to hold them on. According to Dobhig, the focus of the investigation centered around these three from the beginning. He stated that close observation of the men began three days after Natalie was reported missing and said investigation included surveillance, wiretaps into their phones, and even the monitoring of their emails. He also said that pressure from her family caused the police to prematurely stop the surveillance and detain them. On June 11th, David Cruz, the spokesman for the Aruban Minister of Justice, falsely declared that Natalie was dead and that authorities knew the location of her body. 
That's a pretty big oopsie. Yeah. He later retracted this statement claiming he was, quote, a victim of a misinformation campaign. That afternoon, Don Pig told the Associated Press that one of the three men uh, detained admitted that something bad happened to Natalie after they took her to the beach and that the suspect was leading police to the scene. The following morning, the prosecution spokeswoman, Vivian Vanderbizen, refused to confirm or deny these claims, simply stating that the investigation was at a very crucial, very important moment. If you haven't already noticed, this investigation very quickly derailed with irresponsible statements being made from a lot of people who should not have been making them. Right. It, like, who's actually the leader here? It's really hard to tell. Right, and also, where did he get the misinformation that she was dead and they had found her body? And you would make sure that you actually went and located said body before you before put that out there. Before making a public statement, like her poor fucking family... On June 17th, a sixth person who would later be identified as Steve Gregory Kroos, who was a disc jockey, was also arrested. Vander Stratton told media outlets that Kroos was detained based on information from one of the three other detainees. So at this point, they're just name dropping, they're anybody. Just name dropping anybody that they can think of. Trying to take the heat off of them yes. by saying, oh, well, maybe it was this person, mm -hmm. or maybe it was that person. On June 22nd, a Reuben police also detained Vander Sloot's father, Paulus for questioning, and he was arrested that same day. Both Paulus and Steve were ordered to be released on June 26th. During this shitstorm, is honestly the only way I can put it, the three original men changed their stories multiple times. All three of them claimed that Vandersloot and Natalie were dropped off at the Marriott Hotel Beach near the Fisherman's Huts. Vandersloot stated that he didn't hurt Natalie, but left her alone on, on the beach. According to Satish Kalpo's attorney, Vandersloot called Deepak Kalpo to tell him the latter and that he was walking home and sent him a text message 40 minutes later. So the Kalpos are claiming that Vandersloot called them and said, I did hurt her and left her on the beach. But he's claiming he left her on the beach but didn't hurt her. So at this point, they're just frantic for like anything. Why not check the text messages? I don't think the text message was just, hey, I'm home. Yeah. Nothing incriminating. At some time during the interrogation, Vandersloot went on to detail a third account that he was dropped off at home and the Calpo brothers drove off with Natalie. Don Pig, of course, discounted the story, stating, This latest story came when Vandersloot saw the other guys, the Calpos, were kind of finger-pointing in his direction and he wanted to screw them also by saying he was dropped off. But that story doesn't check out at all. He just wanted to screw Deepak. They had great arguments about this in front of the judge because their stories didn't match. This girl, she was from Alabama. She's not going to stay in the car with two black kids. We believe the second story that they were dropped off by the Marriott. Which is just an absolutely fucking insane, absurd, racist, stupid thing right. to say. Assuming that she's in any way afraid of being in a car with two black men right. and that it had to be even though they know that she was in a car with two of them she saw them security footage saw them leave together like it's just this dude is i am not a fan no he sounds like a moron the aruban police seem to fully have their heads up their asses at this point following hearings before a judge the calpo brothers were released on monday july 4th but vandersloot was detained for an additional 60 days that same day, the Royal Netherlands Air Force deployed three F-16 aircrafts equipped with infrared sensors to aid in the search. Um, but they came, in, came up empty-handed once again, so I think they were 
scouring the waters to see if they could see like any temperature changes that would indicate that like a human body was in the water. Um, in March of 2006, it was reported that satellite pictures were being compared with pictures taken more recently in an attempt to find unexpected shifts in the ground that might indicate Natalie's grave. A local gardener came forward with information in a small pond near the Aruba Racket Club close to the Marriott Beach was partially drained between July 27th and July 30th, 2005. According to Jug Twitty, the gardener claimed to have seen Vandersloot attempting to hide his face as he drove into the racket club with the Calpo brothers on the early morning of May 30th between 2.30 a.m. and 3 a.m. Another person, a jogger, who was unidentified, I believe, claimed to have seen men burying a blonde-haired woman, woman in a landfill during the afternoon of May 30th, which is like, why are you just now reporting this right. if this is true? The police had already searched that landfill in the days following her disappearance, but after the jogger's statements, it was searched three more times with FBI cadaver dogs, and these searches resulted in absolutely nothing. That happens a lot, though, with missing persons cases, especially if there's an award being offered, people just throwing out random info yeah. in hopes that something will stick and they will actually mm -hmm. be able to get some info, and it usually is because they read something somewhere and think they can capitalize on yeah. that even though they've never actually seen anything but they're like oh maybe this i'll somehow get lucky by just throwing out this random spot and she actually will be there and then i'm gonna get the reward money. i'm gonna get the 50 grand or whatever i mm -hmm. think it was a pretty extensive uh, reward uh, yeah, about, yeah yeah natalie's family initially offered one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars for her safe return and donors offered an additional fifty thousand dollars Two months after her disappearance, the reward was increased to $200,000 with a $100,000 reward for information leading to the location of her or her remains. And in August of 2005, that reward was also increased to $250,000, which is a substantial amount of money. A substantial amount of money. Especially for somebody who lives in Aruba who probably isn't mm -hmm. living in the best of right. means. And people are, we already know, and all of you know, people are very opportunistic and they will take any chance they can get to get a, a heads up on someone else. Yeah. Heads up. A head heads start. up. <laughs> that doesn't make, that's not what I meant, but whatever. The FBI announced that the Aruban police had provided them with documents, suspect interviews, and other physical evidence regarding the case, and investigators found a piece of duct tape with strands of blonde hair attached to it, um, all of which were tested at a Dutch lab like multiple times, and these hairs did not belong to Natalie. So... They are, they have a lot of leads, they're finding like physical evidence, and absolutely nothing is hers at all, which, which is just... Sad, because that means there's somebody else who had something happen to him also. Multiple somebody else's. Or even, I mean, the Dutch hair, or I mean, the hair could be like nothing, <clears throat> genuinely nothing. And the spot of blood that they thought that they found in the Calpo car wasn't even blood. So it's like, they're just, it, at this point, her family has to be thinking like, my daughter is like, she's vanished. Like, yeah. No one can tell me where she is. No one can tell me where she was last, <coughs> excuse me, last seen, who she was last with. We can't find her body. Because at this point, I genuinely think her family was like, if we find her, we're finding remains. We're yeah. not finding her alive. Because there should there would have been some kind of sighting mm -hmm. of, oh, of somebody like with amnesia or some woman. Yeah. Just and I'm not sure how big like Aruba is. I don't think it's super big. But I don't think it's very big. And she... Couldn't have just gotten on a plane and left and gone home because they had her passport. Yeah. So they know at this point that they're looking for a body, which is just horrible. horrible. Sad. 
So the Calpo brothers were rearrested on August 26th, along with a new suspect, 21-year-old Freddie Arambatsis. Arambatsis? That sounds good. Arambatas. <laughs> His lawyer said that he was suspected of taking pictures of an underage girl and having inappropriate physical contact with her, which allegedly occurred before the disappearance of Natalie, and that Vandersloot and the Calpos were supposedly involved in that incident as well. So... It seems to me that the Aruban police are kind of just looking for anyone around her age that has any sort of record, and that's who they're going with. I mean, those are usually the likely suspects or people who have a history of doing something to someone. Well, yeah, but, I mean... But just randomly picking picking on some guy doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, if what he did was true, or what, what the claim that he did was true, then yeah, he's gross, but that doesn't mean that he's guilty of murdering someone that he no. has, hasn't one time been spotted with. So, Vandersloot's mother, Anita, stated that it's a desperate attempt to get the boys to talk, but there is nothing to talk about. Don Pig later agreed that it was an unsuccessful attempt to pressure the boys into confessing. So they're and, just arresting randos, thinking that that's going to force them to confess? Mm-hmm. I would think that would have the opposite effect. Well, they re-arrested the Calpos, too, oh, at this time. yeah. And the four detained suspects were released on September 3rd. In January 2006, the FBI and Aruban authorities interviewed, or in some cases re-interviewed, several of Holloway's classmates in Alabama. On January 17th, Aruban police searched for Holloway's body in sand dunes on the north coast or northwest coast of Aruba, as well as areas close by the Marriott Beach. Additional searches took place in April and March of 2006 without results. So at this point, they're almost a year out. Yeah. And they found nothing substantial. Absolutely nothing. Um, shortly before leaving the case, Don Pig gave an interview to CBS in which he stated that he believed Holloway was not murdered, but probably died from alcohol and or drug poisoning, and that someone later hid her body. He also stated that Aruba had spent about $3 million on the investigation, which was about 40% of the police operational budget, and also indicated that there was evidence that pointed to possession, though not necessarily use, of illicit drugs by Natalie. Members of her family have denied that she used uses or used drugs, but... When she was on vacation, she might, I, she might have, and most kids are not going to be real forthcoming with their drug use to their parents. Yeah, but I also, like, for me... This, why is he saying that he doesn't believe that she was murdered when he's done five arrests and rearrests at this point, trying to catch someone who he believes has murdered her? Well, it sounds like, based on him saying that they had already spent so much money, that he was using that as a segue into stopping the investigation. Yeah. I mean, that is a lot of money. It is a lot, yeah. But to just be like, I don't think she was murdered even though... Why would someone just... Also, if her body was hidden, where the fuck did they hide it? Did they throw it in the ocean that is filled with great white sharks? Probably. Because if that's the case, I mean, don't you think that someone... I don't know. I think I give people too much credit when I assume that if you're by someone who is dying or has died of alcohol and drug poisoning, you would probably tell someone instead of just hiding their bodies. Yeah, you don't even have to like be there when the cops show up. You can, drop, just be like, you can drop off at an yeah. ER or outside and somebody will attend to them. Yeah. But once again, I, sometimes I think we give too much credit to people. Yeah. Because if we've learned anything, it's that people suck. Well, and just because you would make the right choice for yourself doesn't mean right. other people have 
a more or it's maybe they panic i don't know but yeah and honestly people who live in aruba are probably afraid of the aruban police because the fact that you can just, just be, be locked up for no arrested reason. Yeah. under suspicion and held until they somehow scramble to find something to keep you in jail is a terrifying thought on april 15th 2006 jeffrey van crom crom vort yeah jeffrey van crom is what i'm gonna say was arrested by Aruban authorities on suspicion of criminal offenses related to dealing in narcotics, which, according to the prosecutor, might have been related to the disappearance of Natalie. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> My goodness. At his first court appearance, his detention was extended by eight days. Uh, Van Crom was released, however, on April 25th. In addition, uh, another individual with initials AB was arrested on April 22nd, but was released the same day. On May 17th, another suspect... Guido Weber, the son of former Aruban politician, was detained in the Netherlands on suspicion of assisting in the abducting, battering, and killing of Natalie. He was questioned for six days in Utrecht. Utrecht. I don't know. I'm so sorry, guys. Aruban prosecutors initially sought his transfer to the island, but he was instead released by agreement between the prosecutor and his attorney. How did he get lumped into this? Was he friends with one of them, or all of them, or... I think he just was at the wrong place at the wrong time, okay. honestly. At Aruba's request, the Netherlands took over the investigation. Following receipt of extensive case documentation in Rotterdam, a team of the Dutch National Police started uh, work on the case in September. On April 16, 2007, a combined Aruban-Dutch team began pursuing the investigation in Aruba. Um, this series of arrests and rearrests and releases continued for years to no avails. To no avail. I think, honestly, I read that it was like, by the end of it, it was either like 18 to 20 arrests and rearrests of just like random people. Just by the end of all of it. Yeah. On November 12, 2010, so somewhat more recently, tourists found a jawbone on an Aruban beach near the Phoenix Hotel in Bubali Swamp. Preliminary examination by a forensic expert determined that the bone was from a young woman. A part of the bone was sent to The Hague for testing by the Netherlands Forensic Institute. And on November 23, 2010, Aruba Solicitor General Taco Stein announced that based on dental records, the jawbone was not of Natalie. And it was not even possible to determine whether it had come from a man or a woman. They can, it's amazing the things they can determine from forensic um, investigations of bones. They can tell like your race, your, your age. age, lots of things. It's crazy. It's kind of like the rings on a tree that mm-hmm. can like tell you everything about that tree. Um, before we get into more recent stuff, we're going to take a little break and then we'll be right back for you. June 2011, six years after Natalie's disappearance, Dave Holloway, who is her father, filed a petition with the Alabama courts to have his daughter declared legally dead. The papers were served on his ex-wife, Beth Twitty, who announced her intention to oppose the petition. A hearing was held on September 23, 2011, at which time probate judge Alan King ruled that Dave Holloway had met the requirements for a legal presumption of death. And on January 12th, 2012, a second hearing was held, after which Judge King signed the order declaring Natalie Holloway to be dead. Um, We were talking the other day because we weren't sure 
how long someone has to be missing before you can legally declare them dead. And I looked it up and apparently before seven years, anyone who wants you declared legally dead has to offer evidence that you're not alive. But after you've been missing seven years, anyone who wants you declared alive has to offer evidence that you're not dead. And probably at that point, they even though it's nothing. horrible, her mom had no, nothing, no evidence to, uh, or to presume that Natalie was alive. No, there'd never been any sightings. Nobody was, I'm assuming at this point, coming forward no. with any information saying, hey, we saw her somewhere or I yeah. think this is her. Mm -hmm. So it is tragic and sad, but yeah, I don't understand the point of also keeping the case open at that time. I mean with no new leads or anything. Yeah. Uh, the case can still be kept open if you're declared legally dead. I'm well, because then it would be a murder case, I guess. I think, like, it's still open on the FBI's page. In 2016, Dave Holloway hired a private investigator, TJ Ward, to once more go through all the evidence and information related to the disappearance of his daughter. This led to an informant, Gabriel, who claimed to have been a roommate of one of Vandersloot's closest friends, um, an American student, John Ludwig, in 2005. Gabriel claimed that Ludwig was told what became of Natalie, and in an interview with, the Oxygen, with Oxygen, Gabriel gave a detailed description of what happened on the night of Natalie's disappearance. Oxygen created a new documentary series on Natalie's disappearance that aired on August 19, 2017, and using Gabriel's information, the investigator had found what appeared to be human bones. On October 3rd, 2017, DNA testing concluded that one piece of bone was human, but did not belong to Natalie. On the show, Ludwig claimed to have helped Vandersloot dig up, smash, and cremate Holloway's bones in 2010. In February 2018, Elizabeth Holloway sued the producers, alleging this and other claims are fictional and harmfully lurid, and that she was misled into providing a DNA sample for comparison without being made aware of plans for a TV show. In March 2018, Ludwig was stabbed to death by a woman that he tried to kidnap. Oh my god, so he's a good guy, or was. Yeah. The Twitties and their supporters criticized a perceived lack of progress by Aruban police. The Twitties' own actions in Aruba were also criticized, and the Twitties were accused of actively stifling any evidence that might smear Holloway's character by asking her fellow students to remain silent about the case and using their access to the media to push their own version of events. And this is just what they were criticized of doing. The Twitties denied this, and in televised interviews and in a book, Beth Twitty alleged that Vandersloot and the Calpo brothers knew more about her daughter's disappearance than they have told authorities, and that at least one of them sexually assaulted or raped her daughter. What is she basing that on? Just her own thoughts? I think just her own feelings, okay. yeah. In her 2007 book, Loving Natalie, A Mother's Testament of Hope and Faith, Elizabeth wrote that what we want is, we want justice. And you know, and we have to recognize the fact that, you know, this crime has been committed on the island of Aruba, and we know the perpetrators. We know it's these suspects, Deepak and Satish Kalpo, and Joran Vanders Vandersloot. And you know, we just have to keep going because the only way we will get justice for Natalie is if we do keep going. If we give up, absolutely nothing will happen. Nothing. Which is true. Yeah. So they'll just let it die. In response to her daughter's disappearance, Elizabeth founded the International Safe Travels Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization designed to inform and educate the public to help them travel more safely as they travel internationally. In May 2010, she announced that the Natalie Holloway Resource Center would open at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment. Located in Washington, D.C., the center opened on June 8th to aid families of missing people. 
which is really cool on her to take something so tragic and try to help their people. Yeah, it's a lot reminiscent of the potatoes. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, you can only try to make the best of your situ situation. Yeah. In March 2010, Vandersloot extorted $25,000 from Natalie's mother, Beth, demanding that she wire the money to his account in exchange for the location of Natalie's remains. After receiving the money, he revealed the location, but investigators found nothing there. Almost immediately after this, on May 30th, 2010, the fifth anniversary of Natalie's disappearance, Stephanie Flores Ramirez, just 21 years old, died at a hotel in Lima, Peru. On the 2nd of June, an employee at the hotel discovered her body in room 309, severely beaten with no sign of life. The room was registered to Vandersloot, who had left the hotel without returning the key and left the TV on in the room. A tennis racket, identified by the coroner as a possible homicide weapon, was found. A hotel guest and an employee came forward to say that they saw Vandersloot and the victim entering the hotel room together, and the police obtained video of the two playing cards at the same table the night before at the Atlantic City Casino in Lima. Vandersloot entered Peru via Colombia on May 14, 2010 to attend the Latin American Poker Tour. Flores was a business student who was less than a year from graduation at the University of Lima. She was a daughter of Ricardo Flores, a former president of the Peruvian Automobile Club and winner of the Caminos del Inca Rally in 1991. A prominent businessman and entertainment organizer, he ran for vice president in 2010 and for president five years later on fringe tickets. Ricardo Flores said that the police found date rape, rape drugs in his daughter's car parked about 50 blocks from the hotel where she died. Her jewelry, money, identification, and credit cards were missing, including about $1,000 her father had given her to purchase a laptop and over $10,000 she had won earlier at the casino. Flores reportedly kept this money in her car, but a police search found no money in it. After Flores' family reported her missing, police retrieved the hotel TAC surveillance tape and obtained Vandersloot's name and national identification number. Her brother's wife discovered Vandersloot's background in a Google search about an hour before her body was found, which can you imagine your um, family members missing and you get the name of the person that they were last with and you Google this person and you see the Natalie Holloway case? Right, that would be terrifying. Absolutely <clears throat> horrifying. Mm -hmm. An autopsy ruled that Flores did not have sexual intercourse before her death and that she was not under the influence of enough alcohol to prevent her from resisting an attack. She suffered blunt force trauma to her head, which caused a brain hemorrhage, cranial fracture, and broken neck. She also suffered significant injuries to her face and showed signs of asphyxiation, according to court documents. She tested positive for the presence of amphetamines, but the lab report does not indicate whether the victim took the drugs willingly or unknowingly. The stains on Vandersloot's clothes matched Flores's blood type. Blood was also found on the floor, hallway, and mattress in the hotel room. Police stated that DNA tests would be conducted on the clothes, skin found under her fingernails, and the previously recovered tennis racket. Ricardo Flores stated in interviews that his daughter's body needed to be exhumed to gather the uh, fingernail DNA evidence and that her body had not been cremated for this reason. On January 11, 2012, Vandersloot pleaded guilty to the qualified murder and simple robbery of Flores. He was convicted and sentenced to 28 years for the murder and was ordered to pay $75,000 to the Flores family. Hours after learning of the sentence, Vandersloot was transferred to a maximum security prison located north of Lima, and he is currently expected to be released on June 10, 2038. In August of 2014, Vandersloot was transferred to Chalapalca Prison in the mountainous, south, mountainous region south of Peru, where conditions are harsh due to the location's altitude. 
Two months later, a Dutch online news service claimed that Vandersloot was stabbed and critically injured by fellow prisoners in Peru. But he, is, he lived, right? Lived. Yeah. He is still alive. So sadly, had they arrested him, because I think it's pretty safe to assume he has violent tendencies, especially considering he beat a poor woman to death with a tennis racket to steal $11,000 from her. Mm-hmm. Had they done that, that girl would be alive. Yeah, also the fact that like a, a little bit before that, he was continuing to try to extort her family, Natalie's family. Yeah, has like, he not what? arrested for extortion? Why was he, I don't know. Why was he not, first of all, extradited back to America, or to America, on the charges that of extradition, or extortion. Unless she didn't report him. But she, I don't know. I There's so many holes in the logic and thinking that and the also only 28 conclusion... Years. Yeah, the only conclusion is that there is no logic in thinking. Well, yeah, because that's a pretty low sentence for someone who committed such a violent act. Yeah, 28 years. And he's still young. I mean, it was how many years? Five years later? So he's only 20... Well, he was 17 in 2005, and this happened in 2011, right? So he'll get out when he's in his 40s. 2010, five years after Natalie's death. So he was... 22. Yeah, so he'll be a, still a young man when he gets out of prison. Yeah, 16 years from now. I feel like he did something else, too, that they connected him to, but maybe I'm just creating well, things I in my head. Well, I did link this, because he has his own Wikipedia page, because this man is so notorious for doing crazy shit that, like, he's not even just on the Natalie Holloway page. He's on, um, he has his own page. So, let's see here. So he was um, indicted by a federal grand jury in the United States for wire fraud and extortion related to Holloway's whereabouts, but I'm not sure. Did he get arrested for the murder too soon after? And that's why he yeah, did. Yeah, probably. Because it way happened that right away. And the way that works is the higher charge with the higher um, penalty always supersedes. So it is possible once he gets out of prison for that he could be held and charged with those crimes yeah also. this does say on the 9th of march 27 uh, 2014 the peruvian government announced that he would face extradition to the u.s in the year 2038 to face charges of extortion and wire fraud after completing his 28 year sentence in peru so yeah so he could get an additional what 10 years maybe i'm assuming that's probably what the crime would and he has a wife for that he, he has, has a, a peruvian wife, wife. literally what dude's weird it, it's i think he came from wealthy means also right wasn't he pretty good? i'd assume so pretty i mean he's a he's traveling all dutch student Britain. who's studying at like the international school of whatever in aruba i'm assuming he was probably fairly wealthy yeah it just has the stink of someone who's privileged and doesn't has never had to face consequences thinking they can get away with whatever they mm-hmm. want Sadly, happened. And he a lot. did try to retract his uh, confession because he confessed to the murder of Stephanie, and um, then tried to say that he was pressured by the Peruvian police to confess to her murder, even though he confessed to bludgeoning her with the tennis racket. Yeah. I'm assuming. So, this dude is just—it makes me really sad because I understand why they couldn't arrest him for Natalie's murder because they genuinely had nothing, no, no evidence, no evidence whatsoever. But in the event that, like, there was just anything that could have had them hold him, 
poor 21-year-old Stephanie mm -hmm. would probably still be here today. Yeah. Which, I don't know. What do you think is, like, the most reasonable explanation as to what happened to Natalie? I think they were probably partying together. I think she um, probably was completely incapacitated at that point based on the way that she had been drinking and living it up all day and that they probably raped her and dumped her body in the ocean. Yeah, I definitely think that they threw her body in the ocean because apparently there's, who was I talking to? I was talking to someone at the bar last night. One of our friends was uh, talking about how she, they were on vacation, her and her husband were on vacation and they were talking to a family that um, was either from Aruba or had ties to Aruba. And they brought up like the Natalie Holloway case and they said that there's a part of the Aruban Island where all of the Aruban people dump their trash into the ocean because the great white sharks will eat everything. Yeah. So there's like a part of the island that is known for just like going there and dumping all your shit because every single thing, I mean, great white sharks devour things fully. And people on the island think that that's probably where they took her because if you're going to, the fact that absolutely nothing of her has been found at all, like no bones, no clothes, nothing makes me think that she had to be eaten fully by something. In the story that, he originally told it, Vandersloot originally told where she wanted to go see the sharks. Mm -hmm. Almost made it seem like he thought he was going to be linked to an area like that. And so he was kind of trying to plant yeah, it seeds. And then he could have said, oh, she tripped and fell in. Because the original story was that she whatever. wanted to go see lighthouses. And then he very quickly switched it to, no, she wanted to go to the beach to see sharks. At night, when you can't see anything in the water, it doesn't make any sense. No. So I think that is probably the most plausible explanation just because... That's what he was. I, I think maybe his original plan was to say that. Do you think the Calpos were involved? Um, I, I want to say yes. I don't know. It's Because they were seen leaving with her. Yeah, but... What, do you think you just dropped them off at home and then... Since there's evidence and they have said that he told them he hurt her and they weren't with them, maybe, but I don't know. I... Well, the fact that like the day after when people realized, oh my gosh, she's not showing up for whatever and her parents got there and they went to his house, the Vandersloot house, one of them was still there or already there. So, I mean, what do you think? Conversations had to be had. I'm sure they were getting their story straight. Yeah. But because they had they failed, they all really, three, they failed really hard at they, doing that. They did, but the first time they were arrested, they all three had the same story. Same exact story, which is to me indicates that they had already discussed what they were going to say. Why couldn't they have been charged with like um, lying to investigators or something like that and held longer? Is, is that a charge? Yes. Yeah, lying under oath is a charge. Well, if you're lying and misleading an investigation, I feel like that is... But you, I think it has to be proven that they're misleading an investigation. If they were to find her body and whatever, then they could probably be charged with like misleading an investigation or interfering with an, interfering with an investigation yeah, but the, the fact that there are like no charges whatsoever there's no really investigation to interfere on because they haven't concluded the investigation i feel like three people got very lucky that they didn't spend their life in prison mm -hmm. and one poor girl sadly will no one will ever know what happened to her yeah her mom actually has been pretty amazing despite like the criticism you can criticize him all you want you will never know how you were going to react in that situation when you're over there i can't imagine how scary it would be to not only have your daughter go missing but missing in a foreign country mm -hmm. where thank god they cooperated because a lot of times when people go missing in foreign countries the government doesn't cooperate at all or help you at all thank god the aruban government did launch a very extensive investigation for many years but she 
I read somewhere that I guess they got a lot of criticism because they started telling people um, in all the public interviews they did to not travel to Aruba, which I can see where someone would be like, yeah, that's not a cool thing to say, but I can also see why she would want to say that. Mm -hmm. I mean, Aruba is kind of like a melting pot. There's people from all over the place that come there because they have that international school. So all the surrounding countries, there's so many people there. I mean, I would... And it's a tourism hotbed. And it's and I think the message should also be if you travel, make sure you take whatever steps you can to keep mm -hmm. yourself safe. Yeah. And I'm not blaming Natalie, but too many people go off with someone they just met and bad things happen to them. That's why you should always have a buddy and you should always stick yeah, with your group. The fact that she was just like by herself with them at that um bar is the biggest problem to me. Like I feel like some at least one of her friends should have probably been like, Oh, you're hanging out with these three guys that you met today that yeah. we don't know who they even are. Maybe and alcohol is gonna be involved, maybe we should go as a group. I'm gonna highly doubt that she would deny that offer. Yeah, there's ways to keep yourself safe out there. Because a lot of the stories that you tell are always people that are off by themselves. And I think that is a very valuable lesson to reiterate to your children. And that's what and Natalie's mom has tried to reiterate with her foundation. Don't go off by yourself. Yeah, her Nothing foundation's sole purpose is to tell people how to travel internationally safely. Because there are a lot of ways to do it wrong. And you go in a group, stay in a group. And mm -hmm. Not saying that things can't happen if you're with multiple people, but it's way less likely that you're going to be yeah. snatched from a group of five people as opposed to by yourself. Or if you're like with some friends and then they see like these three guys trying to get you to leave with them after you've been drinking all night, someone probably would have been like, hey, maybe we should leave together and you shouldn't go in a car yeah. with these three I think men. you should come back with me. Yeah. They're called crimes of opportunity for a reason. Mm -hmm. don't, make, and they probably, don't make yourself an opportunity. And they probably knew that she was supposed to be leaving the next day, so. It, uh, the whole thing And, and it may have started off, they may have had different intentions when the night started and things could have just gone sideways. Maybe. I mean, Maybe. given his track record, that's hard for me to believe, but it is also hard for, like, the brain to rationalize how a 17-year-old would want to harm someone that way, but... Did he have anything, like, negative before that? No. So you almost kind of wonder if... Not that I know of, If at least. the reason for his behavior was because of how much he was brought into the public light, and maybe it escalated some toxic behavior on his part maybe it was a reactionary thing instead of him just always having been a bad person yeah this says that he was a star soccer and tennis athlete at um the international school of aruba and he competed in like uh, tennis anniversary cups in 2005 and wanted to play for saint leo anniversary but his mother said that he had a problem with lying and had a tendency to sneak out of the house at night to go to casinos so he had a gambling problem mm-hmm which is, I mean, that was what he was doing the night of mm -hmm. Stephanie Flores' death. So he probably got himself in debt at the casino and was looking for a way out and was going to take her money to... Well, also probably freaked out because he had just gotten charged for wire fraud and extortion in America mm -hmm. and was like, I need money now. Yeah. Which I'm sure he probably used that money to go enter this competition. So maybe the gambling is a big catalyst for his behavior. Maybe. I'm not making excuses for him what he did was shit so but i'm just trying to understand and rationalize yeah even though this uh case happened almost 20 years ago at this point and she has been legally declared dead there is still an a page on fbi.gov where you can if you have any sort of information or tips you can submit anonymous tips still 
Um, it's kind of one of those cases that feels a little hopeless. Because at this point, if there's nothing, I'm going to assume. But, I mean, you never know. There are so many cases where, like, it goes like this for this long amount of time. And people are like, well, this is it. Like, this is all we're going to have. And then five to ten years down the road, they find one thing that yeah. leads them to solving everything. So it's still possible. I commend her mom immensely for keeping hope. That would be hard to do after this long. Yeah. But I, I get it. As a mom, I would be doing the same thing yeah all right well we thank you for joining us we're happy to be back yep we'll be back next week with a haunted episode i'll hit you with some good drinks i think we're gonna make pim's cup Ooh. we'll probably be back mid next week because next monday's my birthday oh yeah party <laughs> happy birthday all right so thanks for listening to the monsters and mixers podcast we ask this all the time, but we really would like for you to follow us on our socials on Facebook at Monsters and Mixers Pod, on Twitter at Monsters and Mixers, and on Instagram at Monsters and Mixers Podcast. Like and follow us on your preferred listening platform. Leave a five-star rating and send us those stories via email at MonstersandMixers2 at gmail.com or at one of the socials mentioned. Yeah, please leave those five-star ratings. It really helps other people find us. Pushes us into the algorithm. Yep. You know, the world is ran by computers, and we need all the help we can to beat them and their evil computer brains. Okay, see you next time when we dive into another terrifying tale and concoct a new delicious drink to wash down the horror. Now get out there and meet some ghosts. And make some toasts.